God, we are blessed to be here today. Thank you for giving us your scriptures. Thank you for giving us logic and reason, organization, language, math, Lord, all these things that are used to better understand your scriptures so we can better understand you, Lord. But it would, the understanding would fall pointless if the result was not in more conformity to the Christ. Lord, I pray that the result of studying your work through Esther and the book of Esther, Lord, I pray that we become more like Christ and that we might sin less and worship you better and more rightly, Lord. May you be glorified by this. Please bless us as we prepare for our worship service this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, the book of Esther, the book of Esther. <clears throat> so the book of Esther is probably one of the uh, most infamous of books uh, within Christian uh, kind of scholarhood. And the reason for that is that it's kind of, in, it's infamous for what it does not have. Does anyone know? Okay, so we, and we've got uh, Nick on the microphone. Okay, we got a hand. We got two hands, so we've got Jane, and the <laughs> we we have three ladies' hands. This is great. Uh, Jane was first, though. Uh, see, I can't tell the difference between a general Gary hand up and uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, tell us some of what what the Book of Esther does not have, Jane. The name of God is never mentioned. That's right. So we don't have Yahweh or Elohim. We have neither. Uh, we don't have any reference to God, okay? It's also missing some other stuff. Any other thoughts as to what else it's missing? <laughs> hands aren't there. where the hands go? Gary? <clears throat> I didn't hear that. What was that? <laughs> you know what? If everyone I insulted stopped talking to me, I'd be a silent existence. That's right. Yep, yep. Uh, okay, so uh, there are no miracles. This is like one of the only books with no miracles. Something that is supernatural, uh, what seems to be the divine entering uh, the mundane. So there's no obvious divine intervention. Prayer is never mentioned. There's no prayer. No one prays. So <clears throat> a book that has no prayer, no miracles... No, so there's no signs of God, there's no talk of God, there's no praying to God. Is it a book of God's? So this has been a question um, that, or a challenge that's been brought up. Very few theologians in the past have ever questioned it belonging in the canon. And yet, these topics continue to be a challenge. And I think for us, more practically than whether or not it deserves to be in the canon, it absolutely does. We will see where God is all over this book. But... The, the purpose of thinking through some of this is for ourselves to realize how is it we can evaluate what God is teaching us through this without it explicitly saying, thus says Yahweh in it. How do we know and how can we garner from this? So if someone were to, to venture to say or summarize, what is the main point of Esther? If someone wanted to say, this is the point of Esther, what's the main point? No wrong answers. Eh, heresy is frowned upon, but. Yeah. I mean, what? why is Esther in there? Oh, we got Jane again. 
Jane gets all the gold stars. I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for, but um, ask me the question. Again. Yeah, what's the main point of Esther? <laughs> the main point. Like, what should be the takeaway of Esther? Um, it's God working through a political situation rather indirectly that he's he's sovereign over everything and he's putting the pieces together as people just go about their normal lives you know you got the king and and his edicts and the queen and and uh, Mordecai and God is is moving all the pieces in place to accomplish his purpose seemingly indirectly wonderful and, and it's the salvation of the Jewish people in the end Right. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Gary's got two hands up. Oh. <laughs> oh. Well, actually, I, I, what was the phrase that Malachi? For just a time like this, and that we're all called at some point for our time like this, and she answered the call. Okay. Okay. So, uh, I, I think uh, Jane in particular hit it on the head. <laughs> so again, sorry, Gary, you lost to Jane again. This is just, um, no. Uh, so, what? Only for Gary. <laughs> Only for Gary. No. Uh, thanks for being a good sport. The, the book of Esther could also be renamed It Just So Happens or the book of coincidence, right? Like, well, it just so happens that, and we will see this, we're actually gonna go, mo we're gonna spend our time in, in Sunday school mostly going through slowly some portions of Esther, progressing our way through the story, and look at coincidence. It's a book that does not seem on its surface to acknowledge a God. It, it goes through no divine means, it would seem. Divine intervention doesn't seem to be there, and yet there is clearly a bunch of coincidence. The, the, if you were to start pulling out probabilities and add this all up, right, the probability of all these things happening is essentially zero, and um, God is working his way through what seem to be coincidences. And so um, the way I would summarize the main point of this is it's the hidden presence of God. It's the hidden presence of God. Uh, a couple of details in, about the book is that we have... It written between 464 and 424 BC. We don't know specifically when and there, but the reason we have those dates is because Ashuerus or uh, King Artaxerxes, he, we know the time of his reign, the time of uh, this book, in, it falls within that reign, but we don't know for sure when and there. And then the other um, challenge with this or interesting aspect, especially when talking about canonical things, is we don't have an author. We don't know an author for Esther. Um, it's not stated. It's not um, suggested. In fact, uh, it's one of the few that when you kind of start to dig into it, you maybe once in a while get someone who throws out a thought as to who it might be. But really, there's not too many people taking a stand for who wrote the book of Esther. But despite all this, God's working, God's providence, Despite an unknown author, uh, open time period, multiple different topics um, covered, but that doesn't seem to be about God, we get into this book of coincidence. So what we're going to have is a series now of about 12 or so portions. We're going to work our way through the book of Esther. 
And um, so Nick, if you want to start with someone with the mic, I'll give them a passage to read, and then um, I'll say a few words, and then they'll read it. Yeah. Oh, wait. You shouldn't. Do we know what the timeline of Esther is? Great question. I think we, you could, I don't have the exact answer for you, but the, yes, you could put it together because we have, we, meaning like you could go back in and do the math, right? <laughs> There's, we're given in Esther quite a bit of, of dates and time frames. They become quite important, actually. Um, we have this, these feasts and festivals. We have eight different banquets throughout this, and there's specific time periods for the banquets. And so we know the amount of time. We could, you could go back and add it up, but um, I will admit that was not part of my preparation. So, um, But yes, there is a way to do the math <laughs> um, that I would feel fairly confident in a good general range. Um, so let's start to look at the coincidences. Uh, we're going to start with actually Esther chapter 2, verse 5 through 7. And we're going to notice how this woman, so this Nebuchadnezzar has taken people into exile. These are people in exile. Um, and uh, quite a bit after Nebuchadnezzar's conquered um, uh, the Jerusalem. But these people in exile you'll, are not very many. There have been a lot of conquered peoples in a lot of conquered places. And so the number of Jews that would be present in any one place is insignificant. In fact, later, when Haman suggests, hey, let me give you 10,000 coins, uh, currency, to kill all the Jews, he's, the king is just kind of like, oh, okay, sounds good. It's not an instrumental part of their economy, the amount of Jewish labor there is. Um, it's such a small portion. And yet, it just so happens that of, out of all the eligible virgins that... Um, King um, Ashwaris has to choose from to bring into his, ne- into his harem, it happens to be a Jew that is selected, and it happens to be a Jew who coincidentally is extremely beautiful. So if we read um, Esther 2, 5 through 7. After these things, when the anger of King Ashwaris had abated, he remembered Vashti. Oh, I'm sorry. 2, you said two. 5 through 7. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Yep. Okay. That's- then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins... Five through seven. Five through seven. Chapter two, verses five through seven. That's all right. Hey, it's all right. I didn't do the math, so we're good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no excuses. Sorry about that. Okay, five, two, five. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamin, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as as his own daughter. Okay, so here we have Esther. And for those who aren't familiar, earlier we also have, it could be put in coincidence or it might have been um, either way, it, through the divine providence of God uh, and the poor kingship and husbandhood of 
Ashwaris, we have Vashti who refuses to come and be paraded in beauty before um, a festival at a feast. And so because she refused, the advisor said, let's never have her be in your presence again. Get rid of the queen. Instead, let's go find some more um, beautiful virgin women for you to bring into your harem. Um, and eventually a queen will be chosen through those means. And so that brings us up to this, where after that happens in chapter one, we have in chapter two, we have this Mordecai. He happens to be uh, a Jew, a, Benjamin, a Benjaminite, and he's um, that was in the group that was taken away by Nebuchadnezzar. And we have Esther, who happens to be beautiful, happens to um, be raised by Mordecai and under the guidance of Mordecai, despite uh, through what would seem to be unfortunate means, which is the death of her parents. All of this um, then brings her into being selected because of her beauty into, Neb into not Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, um, Daniel slipped there, but into Ashawaris' harem. But actually, it's his second harem, so his second collection. There's a whole bunch of rules, I guess, they had in terms of a year of, of uh, like, they anointed with oil and spices and all these things before she's allowed to come before the king. But even then, after the year, the king, out of this whole collection he has in the second harem, has to choose for that person to come. And when that person comes into the presence of the king, if he's displeased or... Whatever it might be, he has to choose her again every time. She has to be invited in to the council or into the presence of the king. And so um, the odds, it's not like Esther has hit the lottery in terms of like the probability of being in front of the king yet. It's surprising that this Jewish woman was selected. And yet there's still, even once you're on the inner circle in the harem, you still have to be selected and brought in. We see this in um, Esther 2. 12 through 15. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. How many does okay. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of, Ab of Abihel, and the, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Okay. So she happens to be chosen. She has to be speci specifically called in by name. Esther has to be called in by name by the king. So you've got to be memorable out of a whole group. Um, uh, you have to be memorable enough to be called in by name. But then she just so happens to be winning over the favor of everyone around her. Okay, so again, it seems to be by coincidence or happenstance, through normal means, 
we see people who win are much better at winning over people than other people. Uh, there are people who I see much better spoken, much more charming, um, and able to win over the hearts and minds of people. And Esther seems to be doing this uh, with, without much trouble. So there's nothing unusual. But it just so happens that a Jew who is beautiful and um, gets called in by name and is winning the favor of everyone around her. And then she wins over the king out of this group to the point of getting named to queen. Um, look at um, Esther 2, uh, 17 and 18. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of the taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So uh, to this point, obviously, especially for us modern ears, it's not like a wonderful, perfect honeymoon situation. We have a very, we have a harem, we have challenges and difficulties. We have Esther who's lost her parents, and yet through all of this, she still is selected as a Jew into, with a Gentile, by a Gentile king, and at this point, um, the king does not know she's Jewish. He doesn't know anything about that. Um, in fact, Mordecai had specifically instructed her to keep it a secret um, and keep it to herself. He chooses her out of everyone, and she not only wins the grace to continue to come in his presence, she's now made queen. So she's risen from the harem now to be made queen. So then uh, if we continue on in uh, 21 through 23, we'll see that Mordecai just so happens to be at the right place to overhear a murder plot. Um, again, the probability of these things is so low. Uh, you would think most murder plot discussions don't happen in public squares, especially about the king. You have treason, you have private discussions, and yet it's happening somewhere where it could be overheard, and Mordecai just so happens to be there. Uh, let's look at Esther 2, 21 through 23. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bithan and Tirish, two of king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ashurus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was in investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged at the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So then we not only have him happening to overhear a plot, but also it was investigatable and provable in some, uh, I don't know what the, uh, the bar of innocent until proven guilty is for uh, the king of Persia, and, and yet it was enough to be confirmed Mordecai's testimony was good. And then we have a critical detail here that might be easy to miss now, but those of us who know the story of Esther, this is a critical detail. It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So the king keeps a diary. There's a giant, probably, catalog of all the things going on with the king. And here we have in the Chronicles, it's a significant event. There was a death threat. Um, so in, they, it's found out, and these men are killed. Mordecai's name and the incident and his finding out of it gets written into the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So it's written down. Whole lot of coincidence so far. So then if we continue on, um, he's, he's heard the plot, um, 
And um, for those who don't know, then after this, Mordecai doesn't really, we're not told of any reward. And in fact, later we're told specifically he never received a, a reward for this. Um, but Haman, so the right-hand man of the king, he come, walks by one day, sees Mordecai does not bow the knee to him, this authoritative general, and becomes angry and decides, I'm going to kill this, uh, this man. He has his own group of advisors and counselors, friends and family who are telling him the house of Haman, which is a mighty house in this kingdom, you should kill Mordecai. You should plot to kill Mordecai. So Haman chooses, instead of killing him right away or going to the king and requesting this, he chooses instead to cast lots. So he decides, uh, I think they call it in this uh, purr, um, uh, we'll see it when we read. They, it's a type of throwing some kind of dice or random chance and probability. So we literally have random chance and probability going on here. Um, and so uh, when they're casting these lots, he's deciding, is now the time to kill Mordecai or not? Um, is now the time to, to kill him. And look at Esther uh, 3 7, whoever has the microphone. Esther 3 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So I don't know the probability scale. Like, I don't know if this is a 200-sided die. I don't know if this is a one-sided, you know, a coin. Whatever casting of lots going on, it's getting cast day after day after day, and it takes a year. It takes a, it's not until the 12th month, um, or excuse me, it's the first month in the 12th year, but they do it day after day after day, and then, um, or excuse me, they starts in the first month, day after day, until the twelfth month, when it when it finally uh, rolls up, it's it's killing time. So, the, God just so happens to right allow that this dice to just flip over and over, or whatever means of casting lots um, that they have to show up to preserve Mordecai's life. It's giving Esther time to win over more favor, to be queen longer, but also enough time for the king, King Asuerus, to forget Mordecai and what he had done and forget the threat on his life. Mordecai fades into the background, but not for Haman. Every day he's sitting there in cold blood thinking through his schemes how to murder this man. Um, Whoever has a microphone, if you'd actually turn to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, we're going to get our our first spoiler that I think it's God doing these things and not just random coincidence. Whoever has the microphone, Proverbs 16.33. Sorry, I pulled a fast one on you. <clears throat> uh, the lot was, is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I'm sorry, could you read that again? Sorry, I'm having a little trouble hearing. Sure. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast, but every decision is from the Lord. I think we are seeing the exposition of that here. or We're seeing the playing out of that here. They're casting their lots, and yet the Lord says it's not time to allow an accuser to come in and attempt murder on, um, on Mordecai. So through all of this, we have this, and then finally the die shows what it needs to show for him to be comfortable uh, 
proposing murder. So over the next um, few chapters, what we end up having is Haman decides, let me offer 10,000 coins to, to have the murder, widespread murder of Jews throughout all the kingdom. And so letters get sent out to, to declare this. The king, King Asuerus, no skin off my back. I'll take the money, put it in the treasury, and um, I don't know who these people really are. Let's go kill them. Having no clue that his wife is a Jew, and um, uh, much less so knowing that she is the niece of Mordecai, being raised as a daughter by Mordecai. And then Mordecai continues to press Esther um, for support and help. And so Esther prepares a banquet. She wins over the favor, summons in the king, Esther, to this point, she said at, uh, uh, at one point in here when talking to Mordecai, and Mordecai says, you need to help save us. You need to say something to the king. Esther says, well, it's been 30 days since I've been called in. I haven't, I haven't been called into the king. I don't have an opportunity. And we have another one of these feasts, and there's a whole um, potential chiastic structure to the feasts, but there's another feast she decides to hold that would draw the king in. And the king comes in. She t- touches the scepter. She then he get, grants her a boon, and her boon is, please just bring Haman to the feast. That's all I'm asking. Please bring Haman to the feast. And so they, the king says it'll be done. Haman's a high-ranking authority. I, I mean, I'm willing to go approve genocide by letter out to the country um, of, of a people uh, at the, the behest of this man who's, who's my right-hand man. And then Esther, through this feast, he gets brought in. She prepares a banquet. And yet, we see, uh, let's look here, Um, at the end of of, uh, chapter 5, Haman plans to hang Mordecai. So Haman um, builds a gallows, and it's built outside his home, outside his family estate. He builds gallows prepared to to murder Mordecai. Uh, And yet, in the perfect timing of all of this, what are the odds? Let's read, uh, whoever has the microphone, please read... um, Esther 6, 1 through, let me, 1 through 3. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the books of the memorable deeds, memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigatha and Tertia, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So he just so happens that right before this feast, right as the gallows have been built, that he can't sleep. Then he goes, You know what's boring? Let bring in the chronicles. Like, this will put me to sleep. Talk about my great deeds, right? This will calm me down. I'll go to sleep. The one, they, the book out of whatever many scrolls they have that happens to be selected is that that describes Mordecai's actions. And perhaps he's, he has had trouble sleeping for, on a regular basis, right? Heavy is the head that lies the crown, something like that. And the portion he happens to be on to read what gets read is Mordecai right? The story of Mordecai. And then the king decides and realizes at this point, wait a minute, I haven't bestowed anything on him. Let me ask about this. So the timing of this is as conspicuous as can be. Um, And then at this point, 
as, he, as he's been told there's nothing that should be done here, we're told at that very moment, right, or at that time, that it's Haman who's preparing to set up, he's finishing setting up the gallows, and he's just about to get called into the king, but as he's doing it, we're told in verse 4 that he's entering the court to come to speak about hanging Mordecai. So had Haman not been there in the court, things would have surely gone better for Haman. But uh, read verse 4 of chapter 6 and see that Haman just so happens to be there right as the king asks to pull a random person into the court. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So, I mean, this is like a, straight up like a play. You have someone who just happens to enter stage right, right as the king's going, who's in the court? And they, he brings in Haman and says, Haman, for someone who's done something great, what honor should I bestow on them? And Haman, thinking it's him who's going to get the reward, lays out a wonderful ceremony um, and a boons and robes and treasury to, and honor given to this man. And so then, of course, the king asked this question, and uh, in divine irony, it's for Mordecai, the very one who Haman is trying to kill. During this time, um, during this time, it's made clear, Esther comes in, and through her access, she tells the king, who has granted her another boon during the festival, hey, you know, I'm, I'm about to be killed. She puts herself as the one who is about to be killed as a Jew. She identifies and now exposes that she is a member of the Jewish court. And so at this point, the king, having great love for Esther, goes, whoa, 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 whoa. No one told me about this. This is what Haman's asking for. And so where before it was honoring Haman, or excuse me, honoring Mordecai and not Haman, but Haman hasn't exposed, ooh, I was about to really jump on Mordecai here. Instead, Esther's the one who reveals this is the consequence of what Haman's done. So Haman is angry, or uh, the king, Asuerus, is angry um, with Haman. And so Haman, knowing that his life might be in jeopardy, goes to Esther during the festival and pleads for his life. Okay, so pleads that she would have mercy. We don't know for sure if she had the ability or if Haman would have actually been executed for this. And, um, and, what happens right as he goes to plead for his, wife, for his life? He happens to stumble and fall on the couch of Esther right as the king walks in and observes him falling on the couch. And we see this in um, uh, Esther 7, 7 through 8. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Okay. So, it just so happens, right as he walks in, that he falls onto the couch, that this is observed 
as he is going to plead uh, for mercy. Um, someone who uh, cornered an animal in his moment, lashing out to whatever he can. The coincidence is enormous. Well, this man has a bag on his face. Haman needs to be punished and executed. He's assaulting uh, the king. Asuerus believes that the Haman's assaulting Esther and proving his, his hatred. The evidence, again, given to the king of his hatred of the Jews and his desire to have Esther killed, along with Mordecai and the rest of the Jews. Having witnessed this, man, it'd be really nice if there was a convenient means to kill this man and punish him. And um, we have the divine and coincidental irony of Esther uh, 7, 7 through 8, uh, where we have gallows provided by Haman himself. Esther 7, 7, 7 through 8. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that her arm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he ever assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Paul, would you be willing to read verse 9 and 10 as well? Sorry about that. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs, in, a, in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So we see here he gets hung on his very own, um, on his very own gallows that he had built outside his household. We have divine irony. Beyond that, we have uh, what you'll often hear in study of scripture as reversals. We have a divine reversal. Uh, as we go through this in chapter six, we have this: all of this starts to turn in the right favor, and the very one who plots to kill and kill those that are God's people instead experience judgment themselves. In um, chapter 8, Esther then is, is, uh, saves them, uh, saves the Jews, tells of Mordecai, talks about, please grant him the ability to write a letter out. Because if you remember, at this point, it's already been distributed that on this day, you will kill all the Jews. And so they end up disseminating a letter written by Mordecai with the king's seal, which specifically is told it cannot be done. And what the letter says is you are allowed to defend yourself and plunder your enemies, those who are trying to kill you. Specifically, this would be the household of Haman throughout the land. And we're told it goes out to India, it goes out to, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, there's a bunch of locations here in chapter 8, Ethiopia, India, um, uh, 127 provinces, um, each of them, this letter goes out. And so we have 
and then them rise up, protect themselves, and they end up killing um, what ends up being uh, thousands in the end between all the nations uh, or all these regions. They kill thousands of those who are attempting to kill the Jews, and they take wealth for themselves. And so they are having victory over their enemy as a result of Mordecai um, and his letter. And then um, in uh, 8... Uh, excuse me, in chapter 10, uh, we see that Mordecai, in a what feels really familiar and in these stories of practical means, sounds very Joseph-esque, very Daniel-esque, in terms of rising up, we have Esther chapter 10. Whoever has a mic, if you'd read those three verses of Esther 10. And King has... And King and King Ahasuerus uh, imposed tax on the land and on the coastals of the sea, coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced on him. Now are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the, king, the Jew was served in rank to the king Ahasuerus, and he was given and was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all of his people. So again, we're told of a slave who's a Jew who, through their rising in favor in the eyes of the government, of the authority and powers that be, they rise to a position to be able to provide peace to God's people and to provide protection to God's people. The probability of this happening is zero. All these things. So again, I would say like the name of this book could be It Just So Happens. The, the circumstances of all of this. If you don't have eyes to see, you would say all, every aspect of this is just coincidence. It is just, well, it's a fantastical tale, but it's just probability. You're right, God isn't mentioned anywhere in there. And yet, God's fingers are over every aspect of this. Every single bit. This could not have been done without God working divinely in his means and methods. And so, it does not matter. The whole point of Esther is it does not matter whether or not you believe there is a God. What you believe about God does not matter when it relates to him accomplishing his will. He will accomplish his will regardless of whether or not we recognize these things as miracles. Because I would say, argue as a Christian, I would push back and say there are miracles lined throughout this book. This is miracle as defined by completely improbable, nearly impossible events happening. And ultimately, I hope we can see a connection to Christ. So I'm going to pose this as a question out there. How could we see this connect to Christ? How could the book of Esther if the scripture is all about, right, the author and his intent, and his intent is Christ, how does this book point to Christ? Wayne? All right, we got Wayne, and then we have Rob Roy. Yeah, God's in control. God's there in advance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then I think Rob Roy was our next hand. So Esther is a book about God's providential care for his people. And while God is not explicitly mentioned, 
he he cannot be ignored. And the key passages in Esther 4.14, you have um, Mordecai's statement of faith. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Will rise. That's a statement of faith. So the question is, faith in who? He believes there will be providential deliverance. It's a statement of faith in in God. And he's calling Esther to have faith that God will deliver, and if it's not from you, he'll raise up and deliver from someone else. And you look at Esther's reaction. She says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I'll go to the king, and if I die, I die. Now, it says a fast there, but you can pray without fasting, but you can't fast without praying. (laughs) So this is her exercising and responding to Mordecai, and her response to his statement of faith is to move in faith. And she prays, and the question is, to who? So faith in who, praying to who, it's clear who the who is. It is God, and it's the central point here. And the parallels to Joseph aren't just in the end when Mordecai is raised to second in command. Um, I remember R.C. Sproul a number of years ago before he passed away going through the um, account of Joseph, and all the way through he said, and it just so happened, and it just so happened, and it just so happened, and there were about 15 just so happened along the way. And yes, they intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Yeah. Amen. Absolutely. And ultimately, you see, I I think the, to me, the most clear line and connection to Christ himself is you have someone here who is offended that this man will not bend the knee to him. Someone, uh, this man who will eventually be the savior of the Jewish people will not bend the knee to him. And so he plots and he plots and ultimately plots in vain to have him killed. And so the accuser stands and is killed by the very means that he meant to bring about his glory and the destruction of the one he's jealous of. And so we see, again, a type of what is to be the greater, which is the very plotting of the adversary to bring about his will so that he might be an authority like a king, instead is used to be his very own undoing um, through his death, um, uh, Christ's death on the cross. So Esther is a beautiful story. It is one full of wonderful, it's a wonderful narrative. I'm so grateful. It's one of those that is super engaging when you read the Bible through the year. And yet, I think just as Rob Roy pointed out and others have pointed out, if you miss the divine coincidences, right, coincidences, you're missing God in this. Um, This is uh, the way I would put it almost is, um, and kind of the way Rob Roy put it is, if the name God is not ever said, we've connected all the dots around it, and the only thing left, right, we've colored everything in, the only thing left is an image of God. It is God left in the image to be seen. So Esther is a beautiful and wonderful uh, book, and, um, and fits in nicely as well, um, 
with the historical literature, but it is the last book of the historical literature through the um, uh, Jewish, excuse me, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew canon. Please join me in prayer as we prepare for worship. Lord God, we are, it could be said that we are here by coincidence. We just so happen to have someone in our lives who told us of the gospel. We just so happened to be chosen to believe. We just so happened to come to this church, and we just so happened to be taught today, and just so happened, Lord, you could say it over and over about every aspect of life, and yet you told us that before the foundation of the earth, you have chosen it to be. You did not know, you did not look down the corridor of time. You are an authority. You chose it to be. That we would be here preparing ourselves to worship you. Lord, and you have chosen how we are to worship you. Both in your spoken will and instruction. As well as in your hidden will. How we are going to worship you this day. Lord, and we pray as we know you will do your will, Lord, that your will will be done through us in a way that honors you, that we will glorify you, and that we will recognize your divine fingertips through your Son and your Spirit throughout the world, that the very God who brought earth into existence is the God who calls us to worship you. Lord, we pray that that is seen and made clear and that you are glorified for these things. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.